This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants stores. How are Nick Young and D'Angelo Russell still teammates? What is the difference between Luke Walton and Byron Scott? And do the Kamenetskis agree with me that Larry Nance is the best player on the Lakers? The only question left is, say it with me, you win? Sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am pleased to bring on the Kamenetsky brothers, Laker lovers all, who um, are part of the pre- and post-game show on ESPN LA 710. They host the aptly named Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast on the iTunes. And uh, brothers, Brian, Andy, how are you guys doing today? Doing great, thanks. Good, good. Great. Always great to talk to you, uh, even though the silliness is we could probably end up walking out our doors and seeing each other in person. But uh, <laughs> whatever works, I'm glad to have you. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's get into this whole thing, you know, the Lakers. Um, how is it possible that Nick Young and D'Angelo Russell are still on the same team and still can coexist peacefully? I think it may speak to really the seriousness with which Nick Young was treating this relationship with Iggy Azalea. Because... Uh. I mean, I know, I mean, all three of us are married, correct? Correct. I, I know that, A, I wouldn't have cheated on my fiancé, but B, I have a feeling that if I had cheated on my fiancé and one of my friends even inadvertently got it out there, I think I could be mature enough to recognize that ultimately the fault lies with me for cheating, but it would probably just still be too awkward at this point to keep working together. Especially when it's somebody that you haven't been friends with for that long. Right. So I think it, it speaks to, I think, Nick being a little bit, well, you know what? I probably would have ended this thing. I probably would have screwed this thing up at some point anyway. And by the way, that is Andy in case uh, we're, we might make sure to get the names, the, sorry, the voices clear. That's Andy. Now, Brian, weigh in on this one. I, I, look, I, I, I am surprised. If you had told me that they, you know three months ago that they were going to start the season with Nick Young on the roster, I'd have told you you were insane because – for two reasons. First of all, he's not, you know, the, the, all the stuff that happened last year and the mess that it caused and the rift that it caused between the two of them. But also, he's not very good. And, you know, you know, if Nick Young were, <laughs> you know, uh, Paul George, it would be a different conversation. But he's not very good. He had a terrible year last year. He had a pretty bad year the year before. And so, you know, it's it's. He's just not worth keeping around if he's not going to be a productive member of the of the uh, rotation, and it it was hard to find a place where he was going to play. I will say this in Nick's defense, although he did not play particularly well on uh, Thursday night when the Lakers played the Kings in Vegas, he's looked okay in the preseason. By Nick Young standards, he's done what you know you would expect. He's come in, he's scored, he's playing at least. Passable defense, which you know for him is is unusual. Actually, he's had a few uh, possessions where I, yeah. so far as to say, he played actual defense. Well, there you go. You know, like he he had a. I'll say this: like this this is this tells you what in, in terms of his buy-in. 
um, I forget which night it was, you know, whenever they played last at Staples Center, Nick Young had a steal. I'm sorry, he had a block and an assist before he had a basket. Now, I'm sure if you went and you looked through every game he has ever played at the NBA level, that has never happened before. Wow. Well, I want to say, yeah. And the, an assist. That game he played in L.A. The, before the, the Kings game, like, yeah, he looked good. Like, he was hustling and making yes. the kind of plays that the crowd was getting behind him with. Um, I, I was actually, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised. Now, I haven't watched all the preseason games. So that was not an anomaly or it was sort of an anomaly? I was Andy, wouldn't you agree? Like, the first game he popped, he didn't play in the first game. Might even not even play in the first two. But then you know, uh, Lou Aldang was hurt, and, and uh, Luke Walton was adjusting the rotation a little bit. And he put Nick in there. And the first game, Nick played like a guy who didn't expect to be in the rotation. But then the next two after that, he was pretty good. And you so, know what? You know, I would say if he plays like this, he'll be on the roster, and he might actually see the floor. You know, I think it's important to remember, too, and as much as I was joking about the relationship between Nick and Iggy, I, I'm like Brian. I, I'm stunned that he's still on this team. Mm-hmm. I did not expect that he would be part of the team going into training camp. And clearly, if he's on the training camp roster, they are expecting him to be on the team because there's no point to even allowing him to take up training camp and preseason minutes. Mm-hmm. But the last good season Nick had was under Mike D'Antoni. And he really liked playing for D'Antoni. The two of them got along really well. By Nick Young's standards, he was trying to do the right thing. I, I believe he, he averaged a robust uh, 1.5 assists a game, wow. which for Nick Young, I mean, that's like magic. You know, that's, like, <laughs> that's like the game Scott Skiles had 33 assists or whatever it was. For Nick, that, that's that. And he was trying to play defense under D'Antoni. And I remember one time I asked D'Antoni before a game, you know, by Nick Young's standards, he's trying to defend what's different about this year than some of the other ones. And D'Antoni said he's trying like and he wasn't kidding around. He's like, look, he's actually trying to do this. Nick Young is a good athlete. He has good size. There's no reason he shouldn't be able to do some of this stuff. So he played well under D'Antoni. He and Byron Scott had a miserable relationship and he played horribly. Luke Walton and him seem to be on a good page. Luke apparently said, like, look, I'm going to give you a fresh start, but you're going to have to earn it. He likes to play for Walton. And I think generally speaking, Nick Young tends to play well for coaches that he likes and ones that like him. So if, you know, if he can play well, he can shoot. This is a team that's going to be predicated on shooting. There could be a spot for him. Yeah, and it's funny too, like, you know, that you start once once you see it's not going to be a toxic situation, it looks like they're going to be fine. First of all, the, the power dynamic here has shifted to the point. I mean, D'Angelo Russell is clearly the best player on the team. You watch him, you know, the, you know, he's got his defensive issues. But in terms of talent bringing in every night, he's the best player on the team. Nick Young is an afterthought. So if, he, if, if Nick causes trouble, makes this an issue, they'll, they can let him go. D'Angelo wins. He's the, the, the star that they're trying to groom. Um, and so you know, to some degree, it, it kind of keeps a lid on Nick. And then you have to remember, too, contractually Nick's contract to be able to have that $5 million or whatever it is, you know, 4.8, 5.3, I forget exactly what the number is, but to be able to have that at the deadline to throw into a deal, if you need to make numbers match up, mm-hmm. you can do that. And then, you know, they might stretch him next year, but this, you know, this year it could be handy to have that contract number out there. I imagine that as long as they don't feel like, Nick is a bad influence in the locker room on the kids. You know, I mean, we saw last year Nick Young 
as the mentor to D'Angelo Russell and Jordan Clarkson didn't really work out. Probably not going to go down that road again. Um, if anything, if anything, it was probably more on uh, Jordan Clarkson and D'Angelo Russell to mentor Nick. Um, <laughs> I think they were probably a little more mature than him. But I feel I imagine that as long as they feel like he's not going to be in any way a bad influence, and you know, and if he and D'Angelo can make this thing work. I, Clearly, he's going to be on the roster. Well, you know, I spent some time with Nick, and I, the one thing I want to stress for all the issues he might have on the court is that he is probably the nicest guy in the league. He's a great top, guy. Top 10. Oh, yeah. He's a great guy. And, and I think he's that's the testament. I think that's why he's on the team. He's, a, he's not going to cause a problem in the locker room. And by the way, if they made it through last year having gone through that, and he's and, and it didn't really – they made it, it was okay. Like, that is a testament to how well, nice he can be. So, so in, They so made it, it through yeah. in part – they made it through in part because that happened like what in March or April. If right. that had happened in December, things could have gotten really ugly. Yeah. Okay. But fair enough. Either way, I, I still think that uh, you know the reason why he's lasted so long, you know, having struggled as much as he has recently, is because they know he's he's not going to make too many waves. He'll you know he'll, he'll be relatively you know professional about it, and he'll kind of go in and go out. So. Uh, you know, I think what we're also talking about is a really big dichotomy between the coaching of last year and this year. And oh. <laughs> I'm curious with boots on the ground, you know, now and then last year, what, what's the biggest thing that's jumping out in your mind right now? I, well, I, the, the empowerment factor, and I know Andy agrees with this, the empowerment factor that, that Luke Walton brings to his players compared to Byron Scott. I mean, you know, we all, you know, all of us have kids and all of us have been around, you know, you coach Nick, you know what it, what it is. When the difference between players, when they feel like they're part of the process and when, they're empowered to go try to achieve something as opposed to told not to fail. And Nick Young, or I'm sorry, uh, D'Angelo Russell last year particularly, and a lot of this revolves really around Russell and, and the young guys. Russell particularly played all year last year being told not to fail and being punished for failure rather than rewarded for success. And it didn't work. It was, it was the wrong dynamic, but he and Byron – could not have been more diametrically opposed in the way they see the world. And Walton, the, the beauty of Luke Walton isn't that he's young, because a lot of coaches are young. Um, what he has is intellectual flexibility and just sort of emotional flexibility. He's curious. He's willing to listen and learn about stuff. And in the same way that Pop is, in the same way that you know, Steve Kerr is those guys are those guys relate to players because they're open minded, not necessarily because they're young. And that's what Walton brings. And so Byron was the exact opposite of that. Byron was unapologetically my uh, his own guy. I'm going to do it my way. This is how I do it. This is how it's always been done. I am unapologetically old school. And it was it was horrible. It was the wrong approach for every really almost everybody in that locker room except Kobe. Do you think that that was related to the Kobe saga playing out, and that was his role on the team is to allow him to have his final year that way? That's why they brought him in essentially because he could sort of he he made Lakers fans feel good about the past, and they could line up all those Showtime Lakers at the press conference, whatever. And Kobe liked Byron and respected him. In theory, it was supposed to be Byron could you know manage Kobe. But really, it was Byron would allow Kobe to do whatever he yeah, wanted I mean, to make Kobe I, happy. That's what I used to always say the last couple of years with Byron is, is if he's the guy that was keeping Kobe in line and on the same page with the rest of the team, I'd hate to see the guy that got rolled. <laughs> right. I mean, because really, there, you could have 
you could have brought in anybody really to coach Kobe the way Byron Scott coached him because he let Kobe do whatever he wanted. And I didn't necessarily get the sense that Kobe respected Byron as a coach. I think he respects Byron as a man and they, they have a history together. And I think, I think they have, you know, as much as Kobe really has friendships with anybody, they have a friendship, but I mean, correct me if I'm correct me if you think I'm wrong, Brian. I didn't get a tremendous sense as far as their relationship as player coach that Kobe had a tremendous respect towards him. I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think Kobe respects Byron, but I think part of the reason he respects Byron is because Byron let him do what he wanted. I mean, they have very similar worldviews. I mean, they see Kobe was a was was a dinosaur. He was a throwback. He's you know one of the last guys from that. That ISO, low efficiency, high volume play, you know, era where that was okay. Well, I, I don't mean this as a knock to Kobe's success because obviously he's tremendously successful, one of the greatest players the league has ever seen. And, you know, he's like Shaq. They could put him in the Hall of Fame today and not bother waiting for the, the five years, you know, the four years. And he was tremendously uh, valuable to the, the franchise and the city. But he wasn't good anymore. Like, you can do those things. Those things are okay when you're good. And Kobe last year was terrible. And I think he would tell you he didn't, you know, he didn't play to anything close to, a, to an acceptable level. And it became a farewell tour. And I think I, I saw the, the numbers yesterday. They were, I believe, 10 points worse with Kobe on the floor than without him. And D'Angelo Russell was, you know, measurably better without Kobe on the floor than with him. And there was no way for the young guys on the team, whether you're talking about Russell or Randall or Clarkson or Nance or anybody, to, to really develop and really take ownership of what they were doing because the franchise still revolved around him. I mean, and, this- you know, it's just, it, was imp- it was an impossible thing to ask for the young guys. I mean, Byron, to his, to, in fairness, was put in a really tough spot, too. I just don't think he... I, to he the made extent that he was able to manage the situation, he didn't do a very good job. He, he made it. I, I think this is the problem that Byron really had with his team. It's not that he treated Kobe differently because all coaches Which did, but, but yeah. all coaches treat Kobe differently. I mean, even Phil Jackson, to some degree, treated Kobe differently. And and all coaches, by the way, or at least most, treat their star. There can be different rules for a star player than say the eighth man in the rotation. And I think most players get it. I think the real problem was, A, he would hold other guys accountable for things that he would not hold Kobe for, even when Kobe was doing the same thing. Other guys, their, their piss-poor defense, that was a problem. Kobe, he didn't even acknowledge that the bad defense existed. But more importantly, though, Byron for last year's team with Randall and Russell and Clarkson and Nance, he needed to be a teacher more so than he needed to be a coach. And Byron, to be honest, resented that. He resented the idea of having to teach these kids how to play and having to really explain all this stuff. And I think he felt like it was beneath them. And that's why he was often dismissive towards them. And you see a difference in with Luke Walton. I think he recognizes this is a team that needs to be taught more than they need to be coached, at least right now. But you are seeing, though, in the preseason, what are we, five games into it? That teaching is taking effect because, you know, while they still have a lot to learn, and they've got a long way to go before they're a really good team. Five games into this preseason, they look much better than last year's team five games into preseason. And they look like they're actually aware of what they're supposed to be executing, as opposed to last year 
where it's just sort of a free-for-all, every man for themselves. You know, I, I will comment on, on that that Byron Scott, Sam Mitchell uh, take of they, they seem like they're frustrated by the lack of fundamentals and they would rail about it rather than, like, my take on it would be, this is exciting. We get to show these players things they haven't seen before. Footwork. This is great. I'm going to show you how to pivot and turn. We're going to show you how to cut off of a screen the right way. This is great. But instead, you had that old school, I suppose, mentality where they would just get frustrated and bitter and upset about it. And that doesn't do anybody any good when you're talking about 19-year-olds or 20-year-olds. It's insane. And so I guess the other thing I'm wondering is, is that is is this was this Byron Scott's mo or was it the, what he perceived he needed to be like to get to give Kobe his send off year? Could they have I, done both? Could they have been able to yes. be more flexible and then still giving Kobe his due? Yes, or they could have better yeah, than they, they did. Better than they did. You know, and I, I think you know, and, and it's the answer to the first part of your question is yes to both. Like by, this was Byron's mo. And Byron believed that Kobe had earned the right to basically do whatever he wanted. And Byron was absolutely of the belief that they needed to do that season needed to be what was what, what, to do right by Kobe. Um, and and Andy's right that Byron didn't even really recognize or wasn't even really willing to talk about. Yeah, okay, you know he's Kobe, and we respect him. We have to give him a send off. But yeah, you know he need it has an impact on the defense, or he wasn't doing this, or when he shoots, you know. 30, you know, 17 shots in 12 minutes, it has an impact on our de- on our offense. He wouldn't even acknowledge that those things were real. Um, and so his MO was both of those things. He was an enabler of Kobe because he believed that Kobe had earned that privilege and was, I think Byron still, in a lot of ways, still thought he was kind of the same guy. I asked, like, I actually asked Byron that once, if he was having a difficult time wrapping his head around the idea that this is no longer, you know, Prime era Kobe, one of the best players the NBA's ever seen, and he admitted, "Yeah, it's this is hard for me." Just, he still thought, I think he still thought on you know night in and night out that that guy was going to be able to show up for ten or fifteen minutes a night or whatever it would be, and then you know, so and then the the franchise enabled him as well, and so you put those two things together, and they they did a it was they did a lousy job. They essentially wasted a potential year of rebuilding because they they tried to. You know, they didn't put enough emphasis on teaching and on player development, and they also tried to do this dance again where, well, oh, well, maybe we can be competitive and get these guys into the playoffs and all that. We'll sign Roy Hibbert and we'll do this and we'll do that. It, and it was it was just very poorly executed all around. So this is the first year, and Mitch Kupchak admitted as such over the summer and into this year. You just, in their belief, you just you couldn't start to rebuild while Kobe was here, and now he's not, and now they are. They have a plan, and you might dislike the plan. You might say, you know, was was it so smart to sign Timofey Mozgov and and Lou Alden to big money four year contracts? Is that really a good plan if you want to go out and sign more free agents next year, whatever it might be? But at least there's a blueprint here. You have a core of young players that they're going to develop, and the veterans that they bring in are the types of guys who are supporting players who are not going to get in the way, who are going to be okay if they take nine shots instead of fifteen. And are going to show the young guys how to be in the right spot at the right time and do things properly. Well, let's talk about that young core because I have to get something off my chest. I was on Twitter watching the game um, the other night. And I, okay, I am known for hyperbole. I'm known for, you know, I, people will never stop bringing up my Harrison Barnes tweets. But 
I watched Larry Nance all last year, and I'm watching him again in the preseason. And I wrote a tweet that said he is, and I stressed, I said he's low-key the best player on the Lakers. And everyone, mm-hmm. I mean, Laker fans are like... I saw this tweet, yeah. Uh, this is, they're like the alt-right of, of, of NBA Twitter, I swear. <laughs> so I want to get this off my chest to make it clear everyone understands. They're not that bad. <laughs> they're not that bad. Uh, maybe, maybe, well, anyway, I don't want to get... I'm already well, in such hot water as I I don't know what the Pepe the Frog version of the you know, Lakers <laughs> avatar would be. I mean, they're insane, but let's at least okay. give them... I've gotten, okay, I've gotten worse from like the Heat fans, but nonetheless. So here's what I'm going to say. You know, I'm watching him play, like, on defense, there was one play, and this happens all the time, where he's guarding his man who has the ball, and he pressures him as he's passing it, and that guy has to now adjust the angle of the pass, like, five degrees, and the receiver of the pass is suddenly making the catch, like, five feet farther from the basket than he was and what he wanted it to be. And that stymies the offense. He does it all the time. On offense, there's this play they run for him, like a back screen, and he like sets it up by like calling for the ball as loud as he can, clapping his hands, knowing he's not supposed to get the ball, and then boom, he cuts back to when he gets open. It's like I see him do all those little things so consistently. And then last year, screening, rebounding, cutting hard, getting the alley-oops, those are the winning plays. And so... You know, Russell's going to have an amazing year, but it's going to be up and down. Like, he's going to be inconsistent. So I just want to let you guys know, or to everyone listening, that, like, at least that's where I'm coming from when I see that from a winning standpoint. And uh, do you guys understand what I'm talking about? I would disagree that I think Larry Nance is the best player on the team in the sense that I think if you started giving him some of the responsibilities that D'Angelo's going to have, you might see a little more limitations. Having said that, we totally agree with you. You, you. You've got two big Larry Nance Jr. fans in me and Brian. And, you know, the Lakers did a great job taking him late in the first round when a lot of people thought that they reached. He's very smart. He's smart and he's coachable. And, you know, he doesn't necessarily, uh, uh, other than jump out of the gym, he doesn't necessarily do anything excellent, but he does a lot of things reasonably well. And he might or be. Better. A, he, does, and he doesn't do anything poorly. Exactly. I was. I was just going to say. There's. There, you don't look at anything with Larry and go, okay. He he's out over his skis if he tries to do this. He does a lot. Of, he he's sort of like, I'd say maybe a modest living Lamar Odom. You know, uh, instead of like not poor man's Lamar Odom, but like a, a modest living man's Lamar Odom. You know, in that he can just do a little bit of everything. You know, Lamar could do more things excellent than Larry at this stage of Larry's career. But you're right. He's a very he's a at the very least a legit rotation player, I think on any team. If he was on yeah. a good team, Larry would play. I think like a, a team like San Antonio, for example, would be would he would have an enormous amount of utility for a team like that right now that could take advantage of all the things he does well and where Larry would know he's playing with other guys that are going to be doing exactly the same kinds of stuff. And what I love about Nance is that there are certain players you can look at and say, okay, high ceiling, you know, but low floor. And Nance has a lower ceiling, I think, than, you know, the Brandon Ingrams and Ben Simmons types of the world. But you know he's going to get to whatever his top level is, that's where he's going to get. He's going to max out at the, the, the top level of his talent and intellect. And in the end, that's going to make him a better than average player in the league and at what was it 27 that's an amazing get and i 
I agree. There are a lot of people in, in Lakers fans, particularly, who think you know ultimately he should be playing more than Randall, despite the fact that Randall has you know the, is the seventh pick and he's the pedigree and got, he's he's got the sort of high end prospect thing to him. They just think Nance is a better basketball player, and right now he probably is. Well, he's a great kid too. On top of it, he's a great you know, kid. I think that he is a uh, he needs not a lobotomy, but he needs an injection uh, in his brain of confidence. If he were, you know what he has to do? You have to get the Shogun of Harlem to start dunking him under the water and asking him who is the man. Because mm-hmm. when he finally starts to believe that he really is as good as he can be, that, I think I think he'll be even better than we all might imagine. But look at the look at the difference. It. Look at the difference already though between this year and last year. I realize it's preseason and rotations are different. He's much more assertive offensively this year than he was last year, even already. And I think you'll see a little bit more of that. You know, he's. Stretching his range out a little bit. He's working on his three-point shot. He doesn't want to be known as a 3-and-D type player, you know, but he knows he needs to be able to, to take that shot. You know, he, he is much more – he had a quiet confidence last year, especially as the year went on. But he's got, he's got a little bit of that edge to him and a little bit of that ego. He's just – you know, he, he's a, 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 a nice, you know, humble player, but he has an enormous amount of confidence in himself. So I think you'll see more of that this year. Why, why does Randall, I mean, listen, I, I mean, I'm the biggest Larry Nance fan there is, but I see Randall as being a double-double beast every night, grabbing, you know, at least 12, re, uh, you know, 10 yep. rebounds, at least 12 points, and uh, he's got a, a little bit of a right hand all of a sudden, a little bit, he's showing signs. It's I, like a nubbin. What's that? It's like a nubbin. It's not a nubbin, quite a hand. Yeah. So, <laughs> so why, like, I swear to God, it's weird, he seems to get maligned more than anybody when I don't see it. I, all I see is very up, a huge upside and very much a lot of promise. I think, I don't know, maybe Andy disagrees, but I think it's a couple things. Um, first, he's inelegant around the rim. He still struggles against length to score. And so, you know, it, it's hard. He doesn't look pretty when he's around the rim. Um, so I think that's some of it. Okay. Um, I think there, you know, defensively, he's got some shortcomings. You know, he's he not, not a rim protector. He's not, you know, you know they have, the, the coaching staff is still working with him on, you know, awareness and positioning and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, he, the, he got a lot of that Lamar Odom comparison, too. And so people, you know, because he's left-handed and because he likes to handle the ball and he can bring it up the floor. And he, but he's not, a, he's not a former point guard like Lamar right. was. And so I think people want to see him do more stuff. And then, it, you know, it's L.A. We, you know, the, the expectation is, they're all going to develop into superstars as opposed to, you know, if you get a guy, wait a minute here, let's, let's say Julius Randle averages 14 and 10 for the rest of his career. He's never an all-star, but he averages 14 and 10. That guy is, you know, he's the, the fourth best player on a championship team. Mm-hmm. That guy is incredibly valuable. I, so I think also, I'm okay too, with that. I also think, too, with Randle. He, he's a throwback type player in today's NBA. I mean, he, you know, his comp... His, his most constant comp is Zach Randolph, who is definitely a throwback to, you know, that traditional low post classic power forward. And in the modern NBA, whatever whatever weaknesses Randall still has in his game, I think they feel magnified because they be, he becomes harder to picture in 2016, 2017 NBA, as opposed to someone like Nance that's more athletic can get up and down the floor quicker he doesn't have a great outside shot, but I would say Nance's is better than uh, Randall's. So, so there's that element too. Randall, in some ways, I think is harder for fans to picture 
as part of today's league moving forward, as opposed to Nance. And, you know, also, too, like, let's, you know, Nance is older than Randall. I mean, that's the thing people forget. I mean, because Randall's been around a couple of years and he lost the you know, last year was his rookie year, but he was drafted a couple of years ago. And, you know, he he's got an old man look about him, you know, just in kind of yeah. how he, you know, when he's on the court and all that. He's 21. Nance is older. Right. You know, he spent more time in college. He's more polished. He, I mean, all that stuff. So you're right. I, I don't quite understand the hand wringing. You know, I mean, he's, he, Randall's not a fully developed product, but he's also 21 years old. I don't know why anybody would expect him to be. Right. Well, you know, I want to talk. We haven't even talked about D'Angelo Russell, really. And I think, you know, he deserves a nice little segment here just briefly. Uh, I was also on Twitter again. Someone asked me who he reminds me of or who he plays like. Or maybe I just threw it out there. I didn't remember now. And I'm thinking of it. And I guess I, was, I had just been watching the, the most recent Lakers game. Um, and they were posting him up. Like it was a, they were calling a play that was specifically mm-hmm. for him to post mm-hmm. him up. And I know they did a little bit last year. So I'm starting to realize that, you know, he reminds me a lot of like a Penny Hardaway. Um, and people, again, freaked out on me um, and, and to the point where I was like, I don't know if you really watch Penny because they wanted to call him a slasher. Because then I had, you know, then we had to go into the whole, like, what do you think a slasher is? Because I don't know, like DeMar DeRozan is kind of like a slasher to me. Penny really isn't a slasher. Anyway, so the point is, is like, do you think that's crazy or do you see some of that, like posting up a lot, terrific passing like Penny also did, handles the ball taller, shoots then he was a good shooter. I know he didn't shoot threes that well, but he was a good, you know, long two shooter. Am I again? I, I guess you're you're my psychiatrist today. Am I crazy or not? Andy, um, you want you want you want to go first? I mean, <laughs> I can see I can see the comp right away, just in the sense that D'Angelo has really good size for a point guard. Beyond the fact that he's tall, he's six five, and that's bigger than your average point guard. He's thicker. I think than a lot of people would would imagine like, you know, he still needs to put on, I think, some grown man muscle, but he's he is a thicker guy and I think stronger than a lot of people would expect. And, you know, and he also reminds me a little bit of Penny, I guess, or you could make that comparison in the sense that his game does not revolve around speed. Like he's not one of these point guards like Russell Westbrook, John Wall, uh, Tony Parker in his prime. That you're going to be you're going to be debating, you know, who's the fastest baseline to baseline in the league. Okay. He's somebody that probes a lot. You know, he reminds me in some ways of Mike Conley, in you know, in in that you know, left-handed can shoot from outside. And Conley's not the fastest guy in the world, but he's got a really good handle. He's very good at reading angles. He's very good at getting you know between creases, getting to the spot that he wants on the floor. And I think Conley sees the floor well. I I actually think Russell, as a playmaker, could, has a higher ceiling than Conley. Huh. His his court vision at times is spectacular yes. for a kid. But by the way, I don't mean athletically because the way Penny moves is a lot different than the way Russell moves. I mean, that's sure. just not mm-hmm. a thing. But, you know, from a utilitarian standpoint, it just seems like they're going to use him uh, in a very similar way, uh, which is exciting to me. Right? Yeah, I, I, you know? I, I'd have to go back and, and watch more, particularly early Penny, like go back and try to remind myself of what that looked like. But people forget, like if – even if you're not, if they say, oh, well, he played this way, this way, let's just take that part out and just look at peak value and peak talent. If Russell gets to pre-breakdown Penny Hardaway levels, I'll take it. <laughs> and, Penny Hardaway money. was Dude, awesome. If he's a poor before man, it's Penny his Hardaway. Bo- you for his body, worst yeah, things to trade it. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Andy. I mean, like, Penny Hardaway was awesome. 
Yeah, I'll, take, I'll take Penny Hardaway. Penny and Hardaway so, was on track. He would have been the Hall of Famer the second he retired if he had not gotten injured. I mean, I, the, I agree with you. you. Know, no I, question. I grew up I in that. Chicago, and we it was the it was it was excruciating having to go through those series. And I don't even know. I remember how they they kind of overcame them uh, when we didn't the first effort when Jordan came back, and then they came the next time they figured out a, a, the, the the secret was to jam the guards early, and they took off time like so they couldn't get to Shaq enough. But uh, it was it was a nightmare having to deal with that. I mean, the, the whole reason. Reason why the Bulls went to a Ron Harper and Michael Jordan backcourt was because they had to adjust to guarding Penny and Nick Anderson. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I mean, in terms of talking about comps and and you know the body types are obviously very different, and I'm not putting him on this level yet at all. I like I see a little bit of Nash in 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 Russell in the sense that he is more and more. D- developing the the understanding that it's not how fast you go it's how well you change speeds it's how well you come off an angle it's what you're doing on a pick and roll and what you see and where your head is and how you're setting up the floor and things like that and russell changes speeds really well and he understands all i need to get around the corner i want to leave you know i'll leave that guy on my hip as i come around i know where the defender is i know what he's going to do i so i can either i can keep my shot open i can make the pass I can do whatever I want, and he's got you know he's developing a pretty lethal three point shot, you know especially for a guy that young. And so he's a he's a guy who can stretch the floor, and so you have to respect the three point shot. And once you do that, he's he's plenty athletic to get around, you know whatever point guard you need to on one on one. And by the way, oh so was Steve Nash, like because you had to respect that shot. That gave him all the room he needed to 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 put the ball on the floor and get around people. And so it's that change of speed. That that Nash had and used so well that I see a lot of in Russell. It's gonna they're gonna work for him. And by the way, it means that when he gets a little bit older, it's he he ought to have a longer career and stretch out his, his effectiveness because he's not reliant on going two hundred miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, uh, I can't thank you guys enough for for helping me sort through some issues. Uh, I think I feel a lot better now about the Lakers, and I, I think we all feel really good about the Lakers, right? I mean, not quite championship 50, level. Fifty-five wins. Fifty-five wins. Okay, yes. fifty-five wins Jim, in twenty nineteen. But um, I guess Jim Boston's going to keep his job because this team is going to the Western Conference Finals. You oh, heard that, that's the, the clock is ticking right now for this year, right? For that, right? Oh, this is yeah. the final year of the clock. Or fire Walton. <laughs> So okay, so is Jim Buss gone then? I mean, if they don't make the Western Conference Finals or make the playoffs, even well, they're not going to make the Western Conference I mean, Finals. I think we can all agree on that. They're they're not going to any playoffs. Right. I mean, there's no playoff they're going to. I, I don't know. I mean, this I think, is a, this I think is a, so, but I who knows? It's an interesting question. I think you know, it's imp- it really comes down to how badly does Jeannie Buss really not like working. With Jim, because she can hold this to him. You know, he's the one who publicly put this clock out there. This was not on Jeannie to put it out there. It was on Jim. I think Jeannie could do a better job job diffusing this and not turn it, letting it linger as a story. But she clearly has no interest in doing that. Um, <laughs> right. She and her brother don't particularly get along. Um, the flip side, though, and this is something I've wondered about a lot on air and stuff like that. As much as Jeannie does not like working with their brother, and that's pretty obvious, and the tension between them is well-documented, Jim serves as her human shield. And the minute Jim is out, all eyes are going to be on Jeannie. There are no more excuses or nobody else that you can pass the buck towards. 
If Jim is out, and presumably that would mean Mitch Kupchak is out with him, I, I would imagine so. If you you're just going to look to have a completely new front office, every decision now is going to be considered a reflection of Jeannie in a way that I'm not positive she's comfortable with. Uh, you know, she's always been in the favorable light um, among Laker fans, and you know she's she's earned that. She's she's personable. She's smart. She's very good with people. Um, but I think also she's manipulated it in a lot of ways, too. And I think she's not above passively, aggressively throwing Jim under the bus or allowing Jim to elevate her status through his failure. And once that's gone, things start changing for her. And I, and I do wonder how comfortable she is with that, particularly with a team that if they're moving in the right direction, is it necessary? All, all very, very good points. And I think... You guys have to come back, and we'll have to revisit that, you know, in a little bit uh, of the season after we get a chance to see what's really going to happen here. Uh, but we definitely feel like no playoffs in this year, right? That's that's the prediction. No playoffs this year. I actually think there's a good chance they hold on to their draft pick. I mean, they're, they'll, they're still probably the worst team in the Western Conference, despite the fact that I think they are definitely going to be more improved. They're going to be a lot more fun to watch. But if let's say they win 26, 27 games, that still probably makes them the worst team in the conference. Wow. Yeah, and then they keep they keep that pick. That, that's the same pick they've been trying to keep a hold of for all these years, right? Yeah, and it, it actually, this year is the this year is the year to do it. If they can manage to keep it in its top three protected again this year, um, if they hold on to it, Philly automatically gets their first rounder next year. But it means the 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 pick that they owe Orlando, which is a first rounder, you know, the next one they're available to give. Um, becomes two second rounders. It actually oh. that's the, the the last one they gave up in the Dwight deal. So if they if they manage to keep it this year, it actually earns them another first round pick. So um, there's a lot riding on their ability to thread the lottery needle one more time <laughs> to yeah. improve, but not improve too much. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the plot thickens. Well, well, let's let's revisit this later on in the season for sure. I'd love to have you guys back and talk more. Sounds great. Uh, you know, find every find these guys at, at Cam Brothers with the K. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel for a conversation. You in? Are you in, guys? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah definitely in. Hell yeah! <laughs> Most in. <laughs> when you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And with help from Albertsons, it doesn't have to be the most stressful. Stop in for great deals on holiday favorites so you can stretch your budget and celebrate more. Pick up fresh, boneless, skinless chicken breasts or thighs, just $1.59 a pound when you buy a value pack of three pounds or more. And get General Mills cereal 10.7 to 13 ounces, selected varieties, $1.57 when you buy two. Tastier meals, sweeter deals, happier holidays. Albertsons, it's just better.